Today we're going to be continuing our series on the Prince of Peace from Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to be talking about the mighty God today. If you weren't here last week, we began this series covering one of the most famous descriptions of Jesus in all of history, and a description that means a lot right now during the Christmas season. And again, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 if you want to turn there in your Bibles. One of my favorite things to do since I've moved up here into God's country is to participate in the living nativity that occurs out on Simonson Road. Last night I took dozens of people through this story and was honored to share the gospel with many of them. There are many people that come through that living nativity that never make the connection that the baby in Bethlehem's manger is the same person that later dies for their sin. This child, born in the most humble of circumstances, is the greatest gift ever given to anyone. Have you ever bought a gift for someone and you're so excited to give it to them that you gave it to them early? Like if you buy something for their birthday, you end up giving it to them like right after you buy it and right after you wrap it. Or you buy something for Christmas and you want to give it to them right away because you want to see the reaction to the gift that you've given them. That's kind of like me. I'm, I'm that way. I, I get that present wrapped and I immediately want them to open it just to see their reaction. Well, this is exactly how God was when it came to the gift of his son. 700 years before he gave us this gift, he told people about it. And specifically, he told the prophet Isaiah to tell everyone about this gift that was coming. Isaiah 4, In Isaiah 9, it gives us four different names for this gift that God is giving us. And it's my hope during this Christmas season as we explore these names, you will grow to understand all of who Jesus is and what he wants to be for you today in 2019. Let's start by reading Isaiah chapter 9 again. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Skipping down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Let's just ask God's blessing in prayer. Father God, I just bring this message to you and ask it that you make it real in the lives of your people, God. Lord, during the Christmas season in the 21st century, we can be scatterbrained, we can be feeling like we're getting drugged to the left and to the right, and that everything is piling down on us, and we lose the wonder that you want us to have of Emmanuel, God with us, God coming in the form of a baby your greatest gift 
So God, I ask that you just remove all of that from our hearts and from our minds today and that we will be able to appreciate again the greatest gift ever given. Lord, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, I want you to keep this passage open in your laps for a moment, and I want to give you a little bit of background to what Isaiah was speaking about that was relevant of, to his time. Now, we skipped a few verses in Isaiah chapter 9, just for time, but obviously, some of this prophecy was referring to a deliverer that was going to come, but since Isaiah obviously was never going to meet Jesus here on earth, the ultimate fulfillment is what we're going to talk about this morning. That ultimate fulfillment came in the form of Jesus Christ. In 700 BC, during the time of Isaiah, the people of Israel were facing hostile enemies to their north and to their east. It was called the nation of Assyria, and if you're going to to identify their landmass today. This would be composed of modern-day Syria and Iraq and territories probably down around, the, around Jordan. All those areas were coming against Israel during that time. And they were raiding and they were conquering and they were causing all kinds of terror, particularly on Israel's northern side. And just as a quick aside here, this came up as a, a discussion point a little while ago. Somebody was comparing the genealogies in Genesis and the genealogies in Revelation when it was listing out the 12 tribes of Israel. And they noticed in Revelation that the tribe of Dan was absent. Well, ancestrally and by God-given land grant, Dan was given some land directly in the middle of the promised land. However, they didn't want that land and they ended up moving to the far, farthest reaches, northern reaches of Israel and they're almost set apart from the rest of the tribes. So what happened when Assyria came in, they most likely wiped them out to every man, woman, and child or they got taken away and hauled away into captivity and that biblical tribe disappeared. So if anybody notices that that tribe seems to be missing in later genealogies, it's not that the Bible is contradicting itself, it's just that there is a historical reason why it's not there. Now back to the message we're talking about today. Because of this tragedy, God knew how the rest of his people in Israel were feeling, he issues them a promise through one of his most respected spokesmen of the time, and that was the prophet Isaiah. And what God is saying through his prophet is, don't be afraid. Have courage. Have joy. One of these days, you're going to feel as happy as you do when that income tax check arrives. You're going to be happy as you would be if you had entered a a drawing and they call back and say you have won the grand prize and whatever that drawing was maybe it was a house a boat a car you're going to be jumping up and down for joy just like you will when this messiah comes and then god says the way you're going to get relief and joy is from an action that you never would have anticipated i'm going to send a child to deliver you a child who will lead you. The government will be upon this child's shoulder. And what I want you to know is what this child will be like. I'll tell you, 
He is going to be a wonderful counselor. We talked about that last week. Log into the previous sermon on the podcast. He is going to be mighty God. He's going to be an everlasting father, and he will be a prince of peace. And this morning, as a second installment in this series, all I want to do is cover with you this second two-word phrase, mighty God. Today we're going to look at the baby born in Bethlehem in a whole new light. In this light, if we understand it and appreciate it and allow it to change our hearts, it's going to change not only your Christmas season this year, but it can actually change your entire life as you understand how mighty God can be in your life. And he will be called Mighty God. And when you look at the original language, my friends, this is a paradox. Let me explain. In this passage, God is telling people that one day a child, a baby, the most vulnerable of human beings, is going to be their deliverer. And think about it. How many ever, just about everybody here has either raised a baby or had babies themselves or been around babies? We all know a baby can't feed themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't communicate. They can't defend themselves. As new parents, you don't even, aren't even able to speak to them and understand what's going on. The only thing they do is wah, 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 wah. And then it's up for you to learn the smell test. You know, kind of lift them up and see if that's the problem. Well, that's not the problem. Maybe a bottle or, or breastfeeding is a problem. And you try that. And, and you kind of have to go through a process of elimination to, to figure out what is wrong with this child. This baby is completely dependent upon others for everything. And yet God is telling us this child will also be Almighty God. And that's the exciting part about Christmas. There's a baby being born who will change the world. One time, years before this prophecy was given in Isaiah chapter 9, the nation of Israel was facing an unconquerable enemy. A nearby nation by the name of Midian was attacking them. And whenever they would attack, they would come in and they would steal their food, they'd steal their riches, they'd steal their property, even their animals and even their tools. They couldn't even go out and start farming again because Midian would take their tools, then they would take rocks and throw them in the field, and they would just be complete and utter bullies and just scoundrels to them. So back then, if you know, if you run out of food, there's no Costco to go to. There's no grocery store to go to. There's no convenience store nearby. If you didn't have a, a garden plot or somewhere to farm and equipment to farm with, you would starve to death. So this is a, a big, big deal. And the Israelites tried year after year and tactic after tactic and, and different ways of trying to stop these Midianites, but they just couldn't. It was humanly impossible. The tribes were, were widely scattered. They had no central leadership. Everybody was just looking out for themselves. And so these people just kept getting overrun by the Midianites. And 
the Midianites were just such a superior power to them, it would be like Trinidad sending out a fleet of fishing boats against the U.S. Navy. The outcome is going to be pretty much decided. Trinidad has no chance, and that's how Israel was before um, the nation of Midian. So they did exactly what many of us do. They tried everything and anything they could do under their own power. And then said, when all else had failed, they cried out to God and said, God, send us a deliverer. Please, God, we need you. And God heard that prayer. But he answered it in a very unusual way. Turn over in your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So let me summarize the rest. You got the big bullies coming in and taking everything and leaving them essentially to starve to death. It isn't like you could run up to the, the grocery store or run over to a food pantry and get some more food. If, if they could not farm, they did not eat. So Israel cries out to God for help. God appoints a deliverer. And then he appoints probably the most unlikely deliverer. His name was Gideon. And Gideon was just about as unlikely as a hero that God could ever call. But when God calls him, he calls him in a very specific way. It says in Judges 6.12, it says, God says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And what's Gideon's response to mighty warrior? He's thinking, mighty warrior? I'm hiding from these people right now. I'm terrified of these people. I'm in a, 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 I, I'm hiding in the lowest possible spot I could. It would be like us running out into the street right now, lifting up a sewer cap, diving in and pulling the sewer cap up under over our heads, hiding from them. That's where the, the, the modern equivalent of where he is hiding right now. His response to God is, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. So that's not exactly the response a great military leader would have. I mean, this isn't the pre-incarnation of George Patton, is it? This isn't Douglas MacArthur. This isn't Norman Schwarzkopf, Storm and Norman. This isn't somebody you're going to throw everything behind and say, yeah, this guy's going to lead us into victory. God says to him, Gideon, I want to use you to show my people and show the world that I can do something great with something small. 
In a way, him using Gideon is exactly the way that Christ was going to come into the world. Using something really small to do something really great. And, and God continues to tell him. This is just paraphrasing. So Gideon, the Midianites are about to attack your country with 120,000 soldiers. That's a big army even in today's standards. And I'm going to use you to defeat them, except I'm not going to like, have you raise up 120,000 Israelites. I'm not even going to have you raise up 100,000 Israelites. Okay, God, well, maybe 90,000 will be able to do it. Nope, don't get that either. Okay, God, well, 50,000? Nope. 10,000? Nope. Keep going. Finally, God gets Gideon down to 300 people. Now, these aren't 300 Spartans. I know you're probably thinking, I saw the movie 300. 300 Spartans, man. They, they took on an army of a million. No, these aren't 300 Spartans. These guys didn't attend basic training at Camp Pendleton or Fort Bragg. They're not Army Rangers. They're not Marine Force Recon or Navy SEALs. These are guys who barely passed their PT test to get into the military. These are guys that are on profile for medical problems that God uses to save them. And what God was teaching Gideon in Israel, he's teaching us in that the, it, it's going to change our whole idea of God if you will believe it. And that is this, a weak person standing on God's side will never be defeated. You know, it doesn't really matter if you are the last Christian on earth. If you're on God's side, you won't be defeated. Seven billion people could be standing on the other side of the battle line. You're standing there all alone. You've still got the majority because you have God behind you. In fact, the Bible says that God's power is perfected by our weakness. Human weakness produces humility, which is the prerequisite for God's power to move in you, through you and for you. Last week we learned that the original... Hebrew language words for wonderful counselor. And this week, we're going to learn that mighty gods, the original Hebrew is El Gabor. El is the noun. Gabor is the adjective that modifies or describes the noun. Now, El is a shortened form of Elohim. When you shorten El down, the most common name used for God in the Old Testament, El is um, literally means the mighty one. Now, the interesting thing is that when you put Gabor on here, it's going back and, and describing El. Gabor means mighty also. So when we're talking about mighty God, translated in the Hebrew, it would be mighty, mighty, mighty God. And whenever the Bible uses repetition, it's talking about God. It's talking about something so fantastic. They're saying, I'm sorry, guys, but our language can't describe it any further other than to just keep saying mighty, 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 because we have no more words to, to express just how awesome this thing is. And that's how they're describing God in this chapter. Prophecies about the coming Messiah are strewn throughout the Old Testament. It starts in the third chapter of Genesis where God says, The one who, save, who will save the world will be born of the offspring of the woman. You remember that in Genesis 3.15. It's the first example of, 
of the gospel in the Bible. And then there are 12 additional ancient prophecies that Jesus fulfilled before he could even walk. And 10 of them came before he even got out of the womb. This is just to show you how mighty God is in, in showing us this in the Bible before Jesus was even born. And if you want this list, shoot me an email. I meant to put it on the back of the bulletin, but honestly, I just uh, forgot to do that when I was making the bulletins this morning. But just to go through a couple, or 12 of them here. The Bible says that he will be born of an offspring of a woman in Genesis 3.15, from a virgin in Isaiah 7.14. He will be the son of God, Psalm 2.7. The descendant of Abraham, Genesis 22:18, from the line of Isaac, Genesis 21:12, from the nation of Israel, Numbers 24:17, from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49:10, from the tribe of or family, excuse me, of Jesse, Isaiah 11:1, from the house of David, Jeremiah 23:5, in Bethlehem, Micah 5:2, presented with gifts, Psalm 72:10. And the children will be killed as a result of his birth, uh, Jeremiah 31, 15. Those are just talking about um, what Jesus was going to be before he was born. Do you know how hard it would be to fulfill any prophecy of antiquity? But much less 12 of them? I read an example of this. Um, Professor Peter W. Stoner wrote in a book, titled Science Speaks, and he uses the mathematical science of probability. And he said that there was the probability of somebody um, fulfilling even eight of these 12 prophecies was 1 to 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 times 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That's 100 quadrillion, if you want the actual number. Now, you're, you're thinking, oh, that means nothing to me. I can't, even, I can't even fathom that. Well, he put it this way. Professor Stoner said, so you take 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and you take just one of those silver dollars and just put a mark on it. He goes, now I want you to put them all over the state of Texas. He goes, if you do this, you will cover the entire state of Texas um, two feet deep with silver dollars. The entire state of Texas. I don't know if you've ever driven through Texas. It's a big state. He goes, now I want you to blindfold a man, set him in the middle of that state, and have him with the first try pick out the one with a mark on it. Blindfolded. That's the odds of any one person fulfilling even eight of those 12 prophecies. That just shows you how awesome God was that he predicted all of this before it came. And Jesus pulled this off while he was still in the womb. That sounds like a mighty, mighty God, doesn't it? But it gets better. Throughout his adult life, Jesus fulfilled over 300 more prophecies. I don't have enough printer ink and paper at home to print out the number of zeros you would have to put down on pieces of paper to give you those probabilities of somebody being able to do that. I looked at the paper I had at home. I have about 5,000 sheets of paper at home and two printer inks of black ink, and it, would, it, would, it wouldn't even come close to being able to put enough zeros on paper. But then we're talking about a mighty, mighty God, aren't we? 
Three quick examples from the Gospels. I'm going to go over to Matthew 14, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Jesus in Matthew 14, he goes through three different miracles. Before he gets to these miracles, he receives word that his cousin and closest friend growing up, John the Baptist, has been killed. He's having a bad day. A really bad day. He's hurt deeply. He's probably not at his best, but then he sees all these people that are waiting to see him, and he goes and he ministers anyway. He's out there teaching all day on an open hillside to a crowd of at least fifteen to 20,000 people. Jesus spends the entire day teaching, ministering, and healing these people. Now, this isn't modern-day America. This isn't they all go back to their cars and drive home. These are people that might have to walk 5, 10, 20, maybe even 30 miles to get home. And these aren't people like we are where we have sufficient fat on our body to, to be able to sustain doing something like that. These people are rail thin. They actually need to eat every single meal or they get lightheaded. He can't send them up to Subway. He can't send them into the supermarket to get something to eat. So the disciples asked Jesus, what are we going to do? These people will faint if they go out on the road. Well, a little guy comes up and offers Jesus five barley rolls, each probably the size of your fist or like a dinner roll, and then clean and pre-cooked little lake fish, probably about the size of a large sardine, just enough for a boy's early meal. And here the Bible says that Jesus in Matthew 14, 20, or 14, 19, says that he directed the people to sit down in groups and on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides the women and children. Personally, I don't think anybody could pull something like that off except a mighty, mighty God. The text says immediately after that, Jesus packs his weary disciples in a boat and sends them across the lake. The lake there is actually the Sea of Galilee. And he says, I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Now, he's probably right smack in the middle of the lake. So there was him coming and meeting them tomorrow to the disciples must have seemed just weird because he would have had to walk around the entire lake or find another boat to take out with them. But either way, they get into the boat and they go to the other side. Jesus goes up into a mountainside, spend time with God. You know, sometimes during the times of greatest grief in our life, sometimes when we're just simply overwhelmed and we just want to keep working it and working it and trying to fix the problems, Jesus shows us the right way. Mighty, mighty God withdrew and spent time alone with God. That speaks volumes. That's a, a whole sermon series in and of itself right there. But that is our example of what mighty God did when he was feeling overwhelmed. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a very unique body of water. It sits a little inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 30 miles inland, and it's 1,200 feet below sea level. 
And the geography of it is kind of like the coolies of our area, where it's surrounded by a mountain up here and two valleys here. And so anytime the weather gets kicked up, the, that lake goes insane. I mean, you can get, this is like a, a small, uh, it's kind of hard to describe or anything. It would be like about the size of Lake Winnebago on the other side of the state. And so the winds, when they would come in, they could actually get 20-foot waves on this lake. And so this is what's starting to happen now. And the Bible says that at 3 a.m., after Jesus finishes almost all-night prayer session, he set out to catch up with the disciples. Only he didn't have a boat. He just decided to walk. But he didn't walk around the lake to find them. He walked straight through the lake. Now, this isn't a lake here in Wisconsin, where in January, completely possible to walk across the lake, isn't it? It's frozen over. Nope, this is Israel. Lakes don't freeze in the desert. So he walked straight across this lake. And this is how the Bible describes it in Matthew 14, 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake in the water, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out with you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, it be and immediately began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. That's pretty powerful stuff. That's a mighty, mighty God that could pull that off. Let's review. He fed over 15,000, probably almost 20,000 people. He walks on water. He empowers a friend to walk on water. And he calmed a storm. Said, peace, be still. And it calmed down. That's pretty big work. But this big work came in a small package originally. A baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But that's how God works. 2,000 years ago, he sent a little package on earth with a message to Mary. Handle with care, because you're handling Almighty God. There are so many questions I have about raising Jesus. <laughs> if you think about it, think about the fact that you're holding God incarnate in your hand. You're having to teach him how to walk, teach him how to use table utensils, teach them manners, teach them everything. That's, whew, to me anyway. So I have a question for you today about what this helpless baby in Bethlehem stable may, could mean for you. What's the great forces in your life that are coming against you today? Maybe it's unemployment or a threat to your job. That would be a pretty huge force blowing in your life, wouldn't it? Might it be fear that you've been dealing with for years? Fear and anxiety can be very crippling if we give in to it. Maybe it's some type of temptation that you've been dealing with for years. Something you're doing or being tempted to do that's really eating away at you right now. Maybe it's alcohol or drugs or another substance. Maybe it's a relationship that you know you've crossed the line in. Or maybe it's an addiction that you've hid 
from people for years and you desperately want to be free from it. Or maybe your great force is simply self-doubt that God could never love you. Or maybe you're discouraged or maybe you're depressed. We need to remember that this child in the manger is mighty God. Mighty God that did all of those miracles in the Bible is here to meet your needs. Mighty God is here to fight your battles. Mighty God is here to show you the path to peace and to joy. And mighty God is here to protect you from all the plans of the enemy in your life. If you will surrender to him, and if you will trust his promises found in his word and trust them for your life. They weren't just written there for the person next to you. They were written there for you. God had your face in mind when he wrote the Bible and wrote those promises. Let's all stand. Father God, we don't always know what each other are going through. We come to church, we put on a church face and, and not let anybody see things that are bothering us or, or things that we are struggling with or weights that we are carrying. But Father, that's not what a church family is supposed to be about. We're supposed to carry each other's burdens. We're supposed to be there and help one another. We're supposed to show love and acceptance and grace and not just be a I'm holier than you club. So Father, I ask, Lord, that you will help us to see in this Christmas season that you want to be a mighty, mighty God in our lives. You are the same God that rescued Israel in Gideon's time. You are the same God that, that multiplied a small boy's meal. You are the same God that walked across the lake in Galilee. You're the same God that quiets the storms. And most of all, you are the same God that can touch any one of us and do the miraculous. Help us to all be like Peter, willing to step out of the boat with you. Willing to take you by the hand and walk with you over the top of those storms. And show the victory that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord God, I just ask that you search our hearts and minds right now and help us to surrender whatever that storm is in our life and trust you with it. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the seasons that you have given us, seasons to remind us about how you can use the smallest thing, even a baby, to change the world. And if you can use a baby to change the world, think of what you could do with us as adults. Hallelujah. We thank you, Jesus. Now, Father, I ask, Lord, that you be with us. Encourage us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit again. Bless our time of fellowship downstairs. Bless that food to the nourishment of our bodies. And help us to have a great time in you. Lord God, I ask this in your name. Amen.